John Davis. Yes. Thank you so much for having this conversation, thank for hosting us at your amazing yeah, studio. Thank you so much for thank you so much for having me on Scott's Bass Lessons. Yeah, and, man. Uh, I'm excited to share you know some of what I do and what I've learned over the for sure the last two decades trying to do this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, people may not realize, but we've done a, a, a number of our courses here at your studio, and I think um, and you know what that has obviously shown us is that you're, you're as you know experienced and, and busy as a producer and engineer as you are as a bass player. So I think one of the coolest things about this course is you bring that perspective right. to to the instrument and to the way you think about sound and the yeah. instrument. So. And I think, I think the fact that that's been almost what I've been doing more of for the last decade or so, you know, it's, it's really changed how I approach the bass. Mm. I, I don't... I don't approach the bass from a player's perspective. I kind of I approach the bass more from a producer and engineer's perspective. Like my idea of sounds comes from how they fit in a mix or in an arrangement as opposed to sort of how they sound in the practice room or hmm. you know or at home when I'm playing with pedals. I don't really, you know, I come at it from a different way. Right. So let's go back. So when you were when you were coming up, were you always a bass player? Um, when I was a my my parents are musicians, but they're you know not professional musicians. My dad played guitar. My mom's a great singer, but um, you know I grew up with a lot of music in the house and and my dad's guitar and you know exposure to music. Um, and my parents are high school teachers, so they they taught at a at a private school in Connecticut that had a, a band room, and so I would you know sneak into the band room whenever I had free time and go you know bang on the drums try and figure that out there was a a super cool uh whatever the red burst rickenbacker 4001 oh cool the fire glow i guess so yeah, yeah that's the color one of so the all-time cool that was like the first bass i ever played mm-hmm. was that and that was, was that like that like the, the cool. band room bass that's yeah there, it was like yeah. the school bass um yeah. you know and a tama swing star kit mm-hmm. with some shitty cymbals and uh but it was fun you know so i kind of messed around on a couple instruments and i actually Drums was the first one that I was like really enjoyed playing, and I kind of connected to that, and like maybe thought I wanted to be a drummer. But then you decided you wanted to be a musician. <laughs> exactly. I fortunately I, I made that that call. <laughs> I'm sorry, I like, drummer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I started I started experimenting with drums, but you know I didn't really play them. I didn't take any lessons. I just like I enjoyed the sound of them. I sort of you know enjoyed a little bit of a connection with them. Mm. But I also liked messing around on guitar. And uh, I had taken, you know, in, in obligatory elementary school education, I think I, I, I studied trombone for a year uh, to kind of learned a little bit about sight reading and sort of mm. bass register instruments. Right. So I kind of, you know, was interested in, in the drums and the rhythm side of things and uh, studied a little bit of trombone and, and kind of messed around on guitar, but it, it didn't really connect with me. And you know, and my, my dad suggested that I try bass. It was sort of like, you know, well, it kind of combines all those things. True, and, good point. bass yeah. players always are going to have work. Were you aware <laughs> of, like, what a bass wa- was at that point? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I grew up, like, exposed to a lot of, like, rock and, and mm. jazz, classic rock and stuff. So I was like, and- yeah, so I was already, like, super into the Beatles when I was, like, you know, seven, eight years old. Mm. It's like, you know, Magical Mystery Tour was like my favorite yeah. thing then. It still yeah. kind of is. Totally. <laughs> so, you know? totally. But so I was like totally into McCartney and, you know, I thought, oh, McCartney's cool. You know, right. I like that. And, you know, I was into like all the 80s, like U2 stuff, hearing that like at home. And, and my dad had like all like the Zeppelin records and stuff, you know, so I heard all these kind of sounds growing up. And so I kind of was aware of all this music that had like 
pretty important bass lines. You mm-hmm. know, it was sort of like I didn't really realize it at the time, but a lot of the music that was getting played was actually stuff that was like heavy on the influential bass. Mm. They weren't listening to stuff where the bass was fluff. It was actually like, you know, Zeppelin four integral like part of the rubber soul and you right. know and yeah. you know and Motown stuff and you know, so I kind of like heard all this and I think that kind of informed how I connected with bass. I was like, Oh yeah, I know this instrument. That's the one right. that that sounds cool, you know. <laughs> like, Agreed. Yeah. So did you, so at what point were you, were you just sort of solely, would you define yourself as a bass player? Kind of decided to really like start playing bass, I guess. Maybe when I was like 10 or 11. Oh, wow. Yeah. 12. Somewhere in that, in that, in that area. But, I, you know, I wasn't taking it seriously probably until I was like 12 or 13 mm-hmm. um, and found a, I don't remember exactly how, I think through a music store in Providence, Rhode Island, I uh, hooked up with a really good teacher um, this guy Mike Caparco, he's, he's still around. He does all sorts of stuff, um, but he really was like influential in, in explaining the bass to me and really giving me like a solid foundation on on the instrument technique wise and kind of introducing me to all sorts of other bass players at the time that I you know might not have been exposed to. So he hipped me to like you know Parliament Funkadelic, you know stanley clark jocko yeah at the same time though he was into electronic music so he also hit me to aphex twin oh wow square pusher and so all he that planted stuff. the seed when yeah. i was like 14 15 oh, he gave me like a mixtape that had like you know that first square pusher tune you know like yeah yep. you know, so i heard that when i was like 15 i was like what is this yeah. yeah i was like i don't even understand this yeah but it was there you know and i don't think i i didn't fall in love with it right away but mm. it was one of those things that i was like wow this is crazy this guy's like trying to make fusion with right. a drum machine like i'll get you back know? to that one day I know. yeah i didn't yeah. really i didn't really have like the roots of of, of club music or electronic music yet to yeah. understand where he was coming from right you know you're so 15 I, it's sort of hard right i was like well that's crazy he plays some crazy bass stuff you yeah. just want to kind of like check out the craziest bass stuff, you yep. know, like, so I got into like Victor Wooten and, you know, Les Claypool and all that stuff. And sure. Um, you know, and then eventually through all of that became more aware of jazz and kind of realized that if I wanted to learn how to play music really at like a high level that I had to learn how to play jazz and to learn how to play jazz, I had to learn how to play acoustic bass. Mm-hmm. So when I was 15, um, I started playing acoustic bass, hmm. um, and that kind of took over for many years. What ah. that sort of became the focus. So, did you have a different teacher for that, and did you go buy a bass and just kind of dive yeah. in? Well, again, again, fortunate <clears throat> the you know the fortune of uh, growing up sort of on the campus of a school. Hmm. There was an old uh, K in terrible disrepair in a storage you know unit somewhere. I just sort of made a deal with the head of the music department that if I paid to get it fixed up, I could keep it. Mm. So we found like a, a local luthier who, you know, who reset the neck, you know, did the, did the few things that were necessary to sort of get it back to a playable instrument. And I just sort of started messing around without a teacher at first on that. Um, and then from there, I kind of, I kind of, you know, we, we had to search out 
there was no one who could teach bass where we were because we were just in um, like a small town in the middle of nowhere in northeastern Connecticut. So I started um, commuting to Boston, to, to Cambridge actually, and uh, took private lessons at the Longy School of Music, which is in Cambridge. It's like a small independent uh, music college, but they do like private lessons for the community and that kind of thing. And so there I hooked up with a great teacher, um, this guy Dave Zox, who studied with Miroslav Vitas at, at NEC. And that kind of got me on the path to start understanding the double bass and jazz and, and start getting my technique together on that and expand my, my understanding. Mm-hmm. What do you think it does for some for a bass player to even if they're not aspiring to be a straight-ahead mm-hmm. jazz bass player, but they do pick up the acoustic or the double bass? Um, what do you think that does as far as the cross-pollination of those two things? Right. Well, I mean, I think you know, I, I think that that playing the the double bass, the double bass and the electric bass are, are really different instruments, but they also do have so much in common that it's it's. You can't say that they're related, per se, but you also can't say that they're entirely unrelated. So, you know, I I do think that if you want to play jazz, really play jazz, you need to play the instrument at least somewhat because it is the origin of that music. Mm -hmm. You know, you can play jazz on electric bass, but you're not going to really understand the function of the instrument um, without understanding that instrument. But I feel, conversely, understanding electric bass and an instrument that is so much easier to play technically and offers uh, less restrictions, you can totally bring that over to the upright bass. Mm. And I think, you know, I'm, I feel fortunate that I kind of experimented with the upright bass a little bit on my own before I started taking lessons because I was able to approach it with a little bit more of an open mind, I think, than if I had started with someone who was like a strict Samandal, like day one, okay, half position, right? you know, super rigid, like this hand must be in this position. You have to learn this basic thing first. So I kind of like, before I took any lessons, I got it and I was like, oh, this thing's weird. Right. You kind of developed your own relationship. Yeah. Like I was holding it wrong, but I was like, I was like, well, I can figure this out. Like the notes are here. Like I'll play the same, I'll try and play the same stuff on upright that I play on electric. Sure. And, you know, I definitely had to unlearn some stuff. Right. Once, but but it was good to sort of explore the connection with them and then learn that they're that yeah. they're very separate. But I think there's a lot of things about learning upright bass. There's a lot of things about up, learning the upright bass technique that definitely carry over really well to mm-hmm. electric bass. And I think that there's fundamentals that are drilled into you studying that instrument that that give you a a deeper understanding maybe of how to create a sound with your hands. Yeah. And, and and how to use like the different positions on the neck to get different sounds that we don't always think of with the electric bass. Right. Um, right. Yeah. It's. I mean, on electric, it's it's so easy to get sound to come off the instrument, right? I mean, most of the work's being done in the electronic side of things. So right. Right. Acoustic playing pizzicato, you really have to ring tone out of it. Yeah. It's really in your hands. And and one of the things that that I've found that you know I don't think this is unusual or unique, but I definitely have found that. I try and take that same approach with the electric bass, where even even though I'm known for playing through a ton of pedals, 
when I practice and the way I regard it is I kind of regard it like an acoustic instrument. Hmm. So, you know, I pretty much, if I practice these days, you know, which isn't that often because of my, my situation doing a lot of producing and engineering, it's not like, I don't have a regular regimen of like, I wake up, I practice this, I warm up. It's like when I touch the bass, that's cool. When I don't touch the bass, I don't, you know, I might not have time to touch the bass for a while. Um, but when I do, I practice acoustically. Hmm. So I pretty much treat the electric bass like an acoustic instrument and try and get, you know, pull a clear, focused, and strong sound out of it without an amp, without headphones, just in the room. Hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I've been playing your bass over the last few days, and you definitely have high action. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked a lot in the courses about, you know, the, some of the specific reasons why that might be a more effective approach for, mm-hmm. for using effects. But it also demands that you you know it's 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 similar to the in terms of the setup of other uh bass players that double on both instruments in terms of the way they you know set their instruments up yeah i think that's a combination of that you get used to when when you spend a lot of time playing an instrument that requires more strength you build up the strength necessary for the acoustic bass and then if you go to a setup on electric bass that's too easy to play, you kind of always overplay and kind of bottom out. Right. You're kind of, and at the same time, you have enough strength that it's not a hindrance or a risk of injury to play with higher action. And once you have higher action, you have the ability to get a way fatter sound across the whole instrument. You have a much wider dynamic range before the strings bottom out. And so, you know, you kind of end up with a more expressive instrument when you treat it acoustically and Mm. you get the action high enough that you can produce a sound Mm. so i mean for instance i'm not plugged in right now and my my amp is you know everything is off there's no di and if i play you know like let's say a d major scale in two octaves it sounds pretty clear even in just our our dialogue mics so you know like something like Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I can hear it pretty loud right here. Yeah, it's pretty loud. It's pretty clear, and and that just translates even better through an amp, um, right. and for me, even better through pedals. But for me, it just became one of those things where I knew if I practiced acoustically, and I could get a sound that felt good just in the room, not with too much fret buzz, not with too much like clackety clackety from hitting the strings against the frets. Um, that as soon as I plugged it into an amp, it just felt huge and sounded really supportive and mm. kind of, you know did the thing in the room that that makes the band feel good and yeah. makes the audience feel good. So once I realized that, I definitely, you know, started jacking the action up a little bit. Right. And I felt like some of my things I learned on upright bass started to make more sense on the uh-huh. electric bass that when I played with lower action it didn't. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, definitely I, I you know, among bass players there's there's this divide, right? There there's the I would maybe call it the Gary Willis school where yep. it's minimal amount of physical exertion and and really about letting the amp do the work and then there is the the kind of approach yeah. we're we're taking and yeah both have merits and both both really do yeah. lead to different I mean, choices both have merits although I, I you know I will say that since I come from you know my school of thought I do think that if you're looking for you know the most expressive way to play and the most range of sounds you can get out of the instrument then it can't really be argued that low action can be as good as high action because you're just you're physically limited with how much energy you can put into the string. Right. Um, and so it's sort of like 
It's like the equivalent of playing with a compressor first in your signal chain. Ah, uh, yeah. <clears throat> you know, playing with low action or with a ramp, you can only get so loud, and you're really limited by how much force you can put into the string. Mm -hmm. And if you have a compressor at the beginning of your chain, you can't play the dynamics of your distortion pedal that's later anymore, because as you keep playing louder, the compressor's just, just holding it there. Squashing. So you're really kind of like shortchanging yourself, I feel like, in both of those situations. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, not to... This is to, to to name names in a positive way, but sure. I think you know the 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 proof of this is look at you know our friend Yannick. Yeah, it's like in the last couple years he got together with Patatucci a few times, got his String action up coming maybe up. Yeah. like you know half a centimeter. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden his sound and his dynamic range and his expressiveness on the bass have catapulted far beyond where they were and they were already like mind-blowingly yeah <laughs> excellent you know so i think sure. it's like if you're if you're questioning if higher action will be worth it for you yeah like look at give it a try yeah, yeah give it. it a try and like the proofs in the pudding yeah. with with yannick because he went from like sounding amazing and having really low action to now sounding unbelievable and having and having really high, really high action, action. <laughs> so, yeah the yeah. other thing about 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 high action is you know, and and this is a theme I, I, when I've talked to a lot of great musicians is the importance of of limitations. That there's some tension that and where that that gives birth to to good things when when there's limits to push against. And you know, when you play a bass with you know as low action as possible and a really flat fingerboard and all of that, it 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 can kind of you can kind of be compelled to do things that may not be the, the best musical choices mm -hmm. because it's just so easy to let your fingers do the talking, right? Rather to than your spirit, your soul, your art, your artistry. Do the totally, talking. totally. I think you have to put less intent into it. You don't have to put as much of like... Exactly. You don't have to think as hard or make sure like, am I? do I really want to do this? Like, this fill's not going to be yeah. that easy. Do I really want to play a fill here? <laughs> right. You know, whereas if the bass kind of plays itself, <laughs> it's like... Yeah, yeah, that's um, interesting. So, so... And sorry, and, and one Go other ahead. thing too is like as a producer and an engineer, you know, I realized that it always sounds better in the mix with higher action. You get that, you know, unless you're in a style where you want some fret buzz where it's like you're playing with a pick and distortion and it's like a right. gnarly rock thing, you don't want to play a low F in like a, you know, a singer songwriter ballad. And hear a bunch of. And hear like. <laughs> you know, and yeah. ruin the take or have to filter right. all the high end out. It's like, it's really about a sound that translates and feels clean and strong, right. you know, and then, then you can put the magnifying glass on it. And when you compress it and EQ it and push it up in the mix, it feels huge. It's not like you have to run away from it and try and EQ out all, Find the, ugly, place for all it. the ugly stuff. That's a great example of the way that, you know, even if you're not a, a don't aspire to have your own studio and be a producer engineer <laughs> professionally, just recording bass yeah. can lead to some insights that you wouldn't otherwise have. Right, right. Totally. Totally. And then, you know, knowing things like that, you know, hearing someone like me talk about other people, it's like if you're going to deliver bass tracks for somebody, like mm -hmm. think about that. Like is this do these tracks sound clean? Mm. You know, does it really when when you play that low G like does it ring out true and fat and focused Big, milky or, yeah, sound? Like, yeah, exactly. Or does it kind of rattle against the fingerboard and turn into this kind of like buzzy mess, you know? Right. And it might you might think like, oh, it sounds fine in the context. Like no one's going to hear the fret buzz, but it just means the engineer is going to have to like 
deal with it filter it out or keep the bass buried in the mix and maybe decide to call someone else right exactly exactly yeah Yeah. so all those things can can happen so so um so you started you picked up the acoustic in high school and so what happened after high school did you study music after that i mean you're starting to get more more and Mm -hmm. more serious about it yeah so so when i was in high school i was like i said i was studying up in cambridge at the at the longy school of music Mm -hmm. with dave zox and i also started studying well, I was up there with a, an amazing piano player, this guy by the name of Peter Casino. And, um, it's a great name. Uh, he's great. He's a great dude. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome yeah. person. Um, and he is kind of like the, he's sort of like the Yoda of, mm. to me, of that scene. And, and I didn't know it at the time, but he is actually influential in, in bringing a lot of really good players to New York. Um, which, which a bunch of strange coincidences that, that have happened. So, he was basically like, you know, don't bother going to Berkeley. He's like, you spent enough time in Boston. The scene here is dead. You need to go to New York. Hmm. You know, You're how old like, at this point? I'm probably 17. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, 18. It's like, this is like whatever, when I'm looking at colleges. So I right. guess that's when you're 17 or 18. Mm-hmm. If, I re- <laughs> yeah. if I remember how time Long works. Long ago. Yeah. Way back in the late <laughs> 90s. Um, and so he was like, you should go to the new school. Mm. Um so I went to, you know, I applied to, I applied to Berkeley, NEC, new school, like all these places. But, you know, I kind of knew it was like, okay, if Peter says go to the new school, go to the new school. And I found out that he had also taught and sent to the new school um, Larry Goldings. Ah. Yeah. So Peter sent Larry Goldings to the new school also out of, out of high school. Um, you know, so amazing organ player and piano player, obviously. And, and viral video. Yeah, oh yeah. As a uh, yeah. Klaus, uh, <laughs> uh, Hans Greiner, Hans Greiner. Yeah. Right. Um, Larry's unbelievable. He's great. Yeah. Definitely uh, YouTube Hans Greiner. If you haven't yeah. yet, you need to test the microphones. <laughs> I don't think this one is on this. Huh? Oh, it's a light. But what was interesting that I found out last year, um, not to, diverge and, and name drop too much mm-hmm. <laughs> but i found out working with brad meldow that he actually also studied with peter in high school oh no and way. that was who introduced him to jazz and sent wow. him to the new school wow in the early 90s he's the kingmaker so he's the dude sending dudes to to new york yeah. to be like you gotta go to the new school <laughs> you know <laughs> like yeah dig so it. uh that was kind of like one of those weird things when brad and i both were i was like wait did like, you? You study with Peter <laughs> Casino and sent you to the new school too? How funny. Um, so then I went to the new school. Uh-huh. I was there for, um, I, I stayed there for three semesters. Is that Reggie, Reggie Workman? Reggie, yeah, yeah, Reggie was there. Um, backtracking just a little bit. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was, I think, 17, I also started uh, taking private lessons with John Patitucci. Mm. He, had st- he had come back from L.A., I think the year before and had uh, taken the residency as the head of the base collective. Right. So I, you know, I had checked out his stuff. That was one of the names my, my teacher in, in Rhode Island had told me to, you know, given me on that mixtape. I think it was some tracks from that Mr. Afina yeah. record. Yeah. Um, and so when I saw like in bass player magazine or whatever, it was like artist in residence, John Patitucci. I was like, I'm going to go take a lesson with him. Yeah. And that kicked my ass on a whole nother level. I mean, John is, is on electric and acoustic, or yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, and it quickly shifted to sort of just upright because mm. you know it's kind of those things where I realized it was like okay, we can work on the electric stuff, but you know his knowledge of the upright right. was like okay, this guy is going to push me, you know, really hard, and he was a really tough teacher. What kind of things were you doing? Sweetest, du- yeah, you know, the, the sweetest dude. Let's get that on. T- t- yeah, I mean, absolutely the nicest, the nicest person. Yeah, really incredible person. You can have a competition between <laughs> him and Brian Blade for nicest person <laughs> in the world. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, his level of excellence of how he, ex- you know, his level of expectation for like how well you should be able to play the instrument mm. and how seriously you should take everything mm. and how musically you should try and make every exercise was just like, oh, okay. Right. When I'm practicing this Arco etude, like make it music. Mm. Don't just like get through the Slog notes. Through it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and he wouldn't let you get away with it if it wasn't musical. You know, mm-hmm. he was like a, a very kind and strict. And at that age, teacher. it's hard to, I mean, it's hard sometimes to even know what is musical, right? Yeah. You're, yeah. And when you're, when, you're, when you're going for it, it can feel like, ah, I think I'm kind of just imitating yeah. what, I, what I think music should sound like. Right. But so anyway, once I moved to New York, um, you know, I went to the new school for a year and a half. I kept studying with John uh-huh. here and there privately. Um, and around that time, he started uh, asking me to do sound for him. At some like little one-off gigs here. So you were also so to, you were clearly you were into you know sound uh, mixing engineering probably into the gear that's usually a gateway drug. Oh, to some yeah, degree. exactly. Um, so you were already doing that kind of thing. Yeah, I kind of was like you know in high school I made like you know demos with my my band with like on like cassette four track and yeah. then cassette eight track and mm-hmm. then you know finally made it all the way up to the local studio that had a Mackie 8 bus and two ADATs, you know, yep. and then it was State like of the, art. the big leagues. Yeah. You know? um, so, but, you know, I was like a dabbler and I was just curious and I would teach myself as much as I could, mm-hmm. you know, by going, experimenting with whatever gear I could get my hands on and yeah. reading, reading magazines and reading books and just yeah. kind of, you know, obsessing over all that stuff. So he knew that I was kind of curious about that stuff and knew a little bit and he would have like some random gigs here and there that weren't like at a club with a good sound guy. It was maybe like a thing at his church where he was playing with, you know, and so he'd be like, right. Hey, like, do you want to come, you know, do sound? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. That'd be, that'd be awesome. You yeah. Know, like, so I started doing that. And at the same time, I started doing a lot of like straight ahead gigs around town. You mm-hmm. know, I would, that was sort of the main reason to go to the new school it was like, okay, go meet people be in New gigs, York yeah. and then, and then drop out as soon as possible, you know, <laughs> right. to not have any, you know, right. or minimal student debt and right. all that. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, I started doing both. It was like I would do some live sound gigs for him. I would play a bunch of, like, small-time jazz gigs around town and kind of just kept kept doing that. And then on my own, I was getting more and more into electronic music, you know, uh, you know, buying all, like, the getting really into, like, the Warp Records catalog. Yeah, so know. kind of IDM, like, really creative exactly, and Exactly, exactly. And, yeah. and one of my roommates at the, at the new school like had a, a teacher at Parsons School of Design who was really into synthesizers and had this like amazing synthesizer collection. So mm-hmm. he was like, you got to go hang out with my teacher, John Blackford, like check out his loft. He has like every synthesizer. I was like, mm, okay. Yeah, you know, and he had this insane, like he has one of the most unbelievable collections in the world. Wow. It's like really <laughs> insane. So I got a huge education just by hanging out with him, yeah. playing with modular synthesizers, yeah. you know, all this stuff. Good times then running sound for john hearing him his band play every night you know going to avatar to hang out when he was tracking records and just watch joey barbaria like his engineer get sounds and be like oh that's how you that's where you put a mic for a bass drum huh i never knew that right. you know here like wow that sounds good and like of course jack dejanette so of course it sounds <laughs> yeah. good but it's like oh you just put a fet 47 like a foot in front of it that's cool right. you know so i just kind of cataloged all that stuff yeah. that i was able to observe which is the importance of, like, there's nothing that can replace experience. Right, right. right. Putting yourself in these situations. Yeah, and so, I don't know, it's a very weird, 
<laughs> it's kind of a weird thing, you know. It just kind of kept kept growing and changing, and I, you know, got some gigs where I do some touring, and then when I didn't have tours, I was like, well, I need a job. Mm. So then I was like, I should find a job in a studio. So, you know, I was on like the tape op message board was like the hot thing in those days, you yeah. know, on the on the in early interwebs. Interwebs, yeah. And I was like, you know, living in a, a basement apartment a few blocks from here with Aaron, my business partner, and another friend. And I noticed like, oh, Studio G, like they seem to like that guy Joel's always posting really cool stuff. Seems like he knows what's up. I was like, I'm gonna hit them up and see if I can get an internship. Mm. You know, so it's like when I'm not on tour, let me start by like having something to do during the day. Hopefully, I can get paid a little bit. You know, meet people, meet some people, and learn more about like how this works because I'm kind of into it. Yeah. But like, I don't know where to. You know, I don't what know where to start. It is exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. um, and it's right down the street. So I was like, great, that's cool. So I hit them up. You know, ended up getting an internship, and you know, because I had sort of observed all this real world stuff, even though I hadn't really been trained. Within like a week, I was promoted to like assistant because it was just like, oh, like you are not an intern, like you know how this stuff works. Like if right. I left you in the room for forty five minutes, like you'd figure it out, you know. Right. So I'm, I, I sort of learned how to problem solve by doing all this stuff, mm -hmm. and then so that turned into like a part time assisting gig for a few years, and I kind of would go on tour. You know, I uh, all of this stuff is kind of happening concurrently with when I started playing with JoJo mm. in two thousand two. Um, so how did that? How did you hook up with JoJo? So because at the time, based on the narrative mm -hmm. so far, you're playing mostly acoustic jazz. Playing gigs. mostly yeah. acoustic jazz gigs, and I'm making electronic music at home and hanging out at my friend's synth, synth loft. loft. Got it. But I haven't put those things together yeah, yet. Yeah. Because in my mind, they're kind of like I kind of don't want to sully it mm. in a way. I'm kind of like I'm into electronic music. I also like playing bass, and it was kind of like when I play bass, I'm like that's a pure I like doing this or I like doing this. Um, you know, and I hadn't really, I wasn't really into the combination that much yet. I mm. actually had, I had dabbled in it in school and it didn't go well. <laughs> there was a live drum and bass ensemble <laughs> at the new school that Amir Ziv taught. Oh, wow. And Amir Ziv is like a great free jazz drummer, but he doesn't understand dance music. Mm. And he, and I was at the time really into dance music you know and so i didn't take it was not a good relationship mm -hmm. um you know he was basically like check it out this is drum and bass and played like square pusher and i was like hey hey hey, hey, <laughs> hey. that's not drum and bass right and that was not a good first class right but this is at a time i mean just to be people who don't may not know or in, you know aren't even from the u.s like there was this moment in new york where where this this concept of Oh, this this dance music that we think is really interesting and creative and amazing. We can actually try to start doing this. Is what a lot of musicians were mm -hmm. checking out. Like, yeah. oh, let's try to do this with with actually without not in just in a studio, but live. Yeah, there was a whole a whole scene and a whole world that in the in the late '90s was kind of started by JoJo and Zach Danziger and Karsh Kale and uh, Kudu with D'Anthony Parks. There was this kind of whole thing that sort of all started happening around the same time, where people like these really virtuosic musicians who were drummers started just being like, hey, you know what? I'm just going to try and play this stuff. Like, this music's awesome, but it's like only DJs are, are doing it. Like, right. what if we figure out a way to, like, to do this live? Right. You know, and so I think JoJo and Zach and D. Anthony were kind of the first drummers to really 
assimilate electronic textures into their playing in like a super convincing way mm -hmm. and, you know jojo started his prohibited beats party at the izzy bar and that was sort of like a jam session basically so sometimes it would be tim and jamie saft sometimes it would be takuya and scott collie it would be all this whole pool of, of musicians kind of jamming and you know i wasn't there i was still underage at the time so i actually it's, it's kind of funny i never got to see the band that i stepped into the uh, chair of right interesting because i you know you're I still young i didn't have a fake id and i was just like well shit i can't go to i can't go to shine like the bouncers <laughs> the bouncers are tough there yeah you know? right <laughs> like, right that's funny so i never got to see the band but i like knew about it yeah um and then i got the call for that gig because um through doug weiss who's a great upright bass player got when you know jojo put out the word at some point that he was looking for a new bass player i think tim had gotten the um chris bodie gig mm -hmm. and was going to be like out of town indefinitely it mm -hmm. was like okay shit tim's tim's out and you know there were some other guys who did the gig here and there jonathan Marin, uh um shazad ismaili um jesse murphy from brazilian girls there was like all these guys who were kind of doing the gig here and there but no one who was really like kind of filling Tim's shoes. Yeah. He was really like, okay, this person can be in the band. Right. So Jojo put out the word he was looking for, for bass players. And Doug put him in touch with my friend, Alan Hampton, who I went to school with. And Alan's a great, amazing bass player. He plays with Andrew Bird. And, you know, he's living out in L.A., an amazing electric player and upright player. Um, so Alan went and played with Jojo. And Alan was like, you know what? this isn't the gig for me. Like, I'm not your guy. You should call John hmm. and gave Jojo my number. And so Jojo just called me out of the blue and it was like, Hey, like, do you want to get together and jam with me and Takuya? Let's see if this works, you know? And so I was like, yeah, fuck yeah. Yeah. And, 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 uh, talk lived like three blocks away from my apartment at the time. So it was like really easy. It was just like, Oh, when do you want to come over? Like, just, it's like, Oh yeah, like, let's just go to talk's house like tomorrow at 2 PM and hang out and play some stuff. So, you know, then I showed up and, there was a duffel bag of pedals, and I was like, mm, okay, like, yeah, I can do this. And he's like, yeah, use the OC2, set it like this. It's going to yeah, be cool. Yeah. You know, and they started playing, and I was like, holy shit. Like, okay, I got to play with this, like, maelstrom of beats. Just and it was a just lot sort of like, coming at you. Yeah, it was, you know, it was totally amazing. It was just like, wow, okay. Yeah. But, you know, somehow, like, what I did worked for him like he saw like i'm sure it sounded terrible mm. but somehow there was something about my approach to it like mm. probably because i was sitting at home trying to make like my own knockoff square pusher right. tunes and apex twin stuff you and were yeah playing familiar. at my friend's synth loft that like i understood the music right and i was a good enough bass player that i could hang on a musical level um but i hadn't put the two things together yet right. so you know we we got together and jammed a few times and uh, I think the first gig I did with the band was at, uh, there was this legendary kind of rave uh, in New York City called Rubulad that they, they had a warehouse in Brooklyn for a while and then they had a warehouse in Queens and they would throw these like, like epic parties mm -hmm. that would like, you know, start at midnight on Friday and go until five in the morning on Sunday. And yeah. it was like, you know different bands different djs different rooms and you would just you yeah would, you would be like cool we're going on when like 2 a.m like okay you just bring some coffee with you and yeah you i mean <laughs> i don't even remember <laughs> yeah. like i was so green and kind of yeah that i was like you know i hadn't like i wasn't like a club kid so it's like i loved right. the music but i wasn't like that could be an overwhelming i wasn't you know. like yeah cool rave i was kind of like showing up with my like 
Epiphany two by ten and like Walter <laughs> Woods and like a bag of pedals being like, uh-huh, yeah, that person's got a lot of piercings. No, yeah, 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 right. <laughs> like, for sure. um, but it was really fun. And the, the totally. you know, we played for about 15 minutes and then the fire department shut it down. Oh man. So it was perfect because I played really great for 15 minutes before I ran out of all my ideas. <laughs> so they got so, the best 15. Yeah. I left it at a really high <clears throat> note <clears throat> and, uh, you know, then we started doing some more gigs around town and it just kind of kept going. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. And you're still, it's still happening. I yeah. Mean, and there, COVID you know, notwithstanding it's, yeah, we've been, we've been going pretty much solid the whole time. I mean, there were a few tours when we first built the studio that I couldn't take the financial risk of leaving, mm. you know? So Yannick did a, a couple tours. Um, Yossi Fine did a tour, you know, maybe 10 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, other than that, it's been a, it's been a really fun solid and 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 long run together and we've been able to create a lot of a lot of cool music Mm. so yeah i mean hearing your story you know and thinking about what what the people watching can should should take from it you know to me it just reinforces the importance of first of all like put energy and time into the things that you really enjoy Mm -hmm. and love right and also if you're you know and, and curious to hear your thoughts on this like you know you had the good fortune of being already having grown up in Connecticut. So you're near New York, you're near Boston, you're yeah. near these places where great musicians congregate. But, right. but if you aspire to do this stuff and you don't live in the Northeast or near LA or Bay area or whatever, you know, put yourself in the place where, cause so much of, of your story is about, I met this person then mm-hmm. I went to the school with this guy. It all kind of led to this thing. So yeah. hey, what would you say to someone who's like, wants a, a, a career in this? And, and what, what do you think is, are the sort of the, the, the antecedents for that? Well, one thing that I think is is important. I mean, first of all, these days, like people have such a different availability in term because of the internet. Mm. You know, so things are really are really changing a lot, and obviously have changed a lot in the last twenty years in terms of the access that you have to people. I mean, in in you know, 1996, when I was like 15 years old, it was like, you know, you had to be on some like weird listserv mailing. uh, Exactly. You know, and then you could like use net somehow like on the website, you're like, Oh, I can send an email to like Victor Wooten's manager. Like crazy. Maybe (laughs) I can take a lesson, you know, and like you could work those things out. Yeah. You know, and, but you couldn't just be like, you know, people are so accessible now. Right. They may not reply because it's actually too accessible. And it's the thing is like, um, don't, don't you think that like, you know, I think we're roughly the same age and I remember I'm going to be 40 in May. I'm 40. I just turned 42. Okay. So we grew up in a, we, yeah. we both, we straddled the divide pre-internet and post-internet. Yeah. And don't you think that, I mean, so I remember the effort that I had to put into getting information about bass and about music. Exactly. And if I wanted to hear music, I had to go to a record store. If I wanted to, you know, practice reading, I had to go to a music store and buy something to read. So, I mean, what do you have to say about, because obviously there's so much good about this access to information, access to people, yeah. but there's also like, you can get a little lazy, can't you? Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, but I, but I think that it's overall, I think it's a net positive that sure. people can just get more, but, totally. but you know, ultimately, yeah, if you want to have that personal connection, you do have to end up moving somewhere i mean i'm i'm wary to to say the sort of thing like oh you have to move to new york you have to move to whatever because sure i think these days it's like it's more and more a different thing the way that the 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 entire industry works is obviously always shifting i mean you have bands like wolfpack 
who are huge who play like two gigs a year. Right. But they do all these videos. Yeah. And like they are hugely more successful than our <laughs> band who has toured for 20 years. And that's fine, but it's like they came up at the right time. They figured out like, oh, we can just make some cool videos. Mm-hmm. We'll play a couple shows and boom, like what, seven years later, they're selling out Madison Square Garden yeah, for their one gig a year. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely insane. It is. But awesome. It like, is. I'm so happy for them that they can pull that off because it's like 20 years ago, that's absolutely unheard of yeah unheard um, of. you know but you still have to be around people yes like-minded people that yes and, you. and i think music schools for that reason are still a really good place to go um only for the fact of meeting people your age with the same ideas who want to do the same things because almost so many of the people that i that i still work with at the studio are people that i met 20 years ago when i moved to new york right you know, in school 23 years ago whatever. right you know and so those relationships like last forever and mm-hmm. a lot of people i went to school with are some of like the biggest names in music you know robert glasper and i you know robert glasper was like in the first ensemble i was in at the new school you mm-hmm. know and so things like that are kind of crazy but because you, you never know who you're going to meet and where they're going to go to but you right. kind of keep those connections um that being said, it's like where I've ended up is never a place that I expected or planned to be. Mm. So I think, you know, it. I've always just sort of followed where it went. And it was sort of like, oh, I like this. Oh, someone wants me to do sound. Okay, I'll do sound. Right. You know, I think like if 18-year-old me had really only wanted to like play upright bass with Michael Brecker... Mm. 40-year-old me would be really disappointed right now. Right. You know, but I kind of have just let it, like, kind of try and go with it, you right. know, because especially as things keep changing, you know, you don't want to go into expecting that you can achieve something that maybe isn't achievable. And if you're too focused on just, like, one goal, yeah. you're going to lose opportunities to do other cool stuff. Totally. Um, it's some it's some ratio of sort of ambition and focus and flexibility, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 18-year-old me wanted to be the next John Patitucci. Right. What I'm doing is, like, in some ways, miles away from that. In yeah. some ways, it's the same concept of playing bass and, and serving the music, the music and stuff. You know, it all comes back to a lot of that stuff. But, you know, um, you have to be just willing to let it go wherever it leads. Mm-hmm. So, so if you had, like, one piece of advice to offer a young musician now and mm-hmm. and you know despite our age i think we're pretty aware of of the the, the, the changes in the music yep. culture and the internet culture what what would what would that be what would you advise them to 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 do as far as a philosophy and where to put their energy and attention well i think the the most important things are to learn the the history and the roots of the instrument and the music hmm. but to sort of actively and and passionately pursue the music that makes you the happiest you they're not they're not separate you don't just because you have to learn about all the roots doesn't mean that you have to only play motown style bass or you have to only play four beats swinging jazz Mm. you can learn all that stuff very deeply and at the same time you know just be programming you know, software sense trying to sound like Richard Devine or something. It's not gonna. It's not gonna hurt. Or you can be playing in in your in a rock band, you know, and taking that that knowledge that you learn of the history of it and uh, and and channeling that through what you do now. Mm. And, and 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 would you say letting your your taste and and 
your intuition guide where you put your focus energy because i know a lot of a lot of musicians especially certainly bass players um they feel a certain responsibility to do things that they may not even really be interested in right like yeah. have a certain amount of flexibility awareness of different styles and there's something to be said for that as, you, as you're learning and growing yeah but. it's it's definitely it's definitely important to learn all that stuff mm-hmm. but you know i think at a certain point you you do kind of need to decide if you're going to it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's a dog here, folks. He's the best. Yeah. At, at a certain point, you kind of need to decide if you're going to approach music as a thing where you are the guy who knows every pop tune of the 70s and 80s and can, um, you know, play a wedding gig in any key. And, right. You know, or if you're going to try and create something new. Yeah. You know, and, and there's nothing wrong with either of those things, but... Um, you know, for me, it was I, I was more motivated to try and create new sounds and explore newer music that I liked, and you know, not really worry about if I knew the changes to a, <laughs> right. every Stevie Wonder tune. Right. To be, you know, and, that, and if that's the case, don't feel shame, don't feel guilty. Just either be, way, be either you. way, yeah. either way. Yeah, and right you know, on. it's it's nice getting to hear. Sometimes in music school, you get like a sort of bow. Browbeaten brow beaten a mm-hmm. little bit into like you need to transcribe like 500 solos if you don't have a book with 500 solos transcribed right. like you can't be a real musician you if you can. don't know a thousand t- you know right. but then the thing that's funny about that is because of some of the records I've gotten to do and like even doing some of these Scott's bass lessons things um, you know it was great talking to Larry Grenadier mm-hmm. earlier this week and ha- hearing him be like yeah like I, I'm not good at transcribing I never, really... I never got into it I think maybe I transcribed like Ten things right. ever, and right. you're like, great. Finally, like, why don't we hear this in school? Yeah. Like, you don't have to do right. the shit that doesn't motivate you. You know, right. to a certain extent, yes, you need to push yourself out your outside your comfort level. Sure. But like, if you don't have a book of transcriptions, it doesn't matter. It doesn't clearly, mean you're not a real musician. Clearly, didn't hurt Larry. Yeah, and a similar thing actually with Brad, which is funny. They play together. Mm-hmm. Brad Maldos said he's done very few transcriptions in his life. Interesting doesn't seem to hurt him you know interesting there's a lot of people who have tons of transcriptions so. yeah but follow your muse follow, the follow thing your muse and don't you and don't burn out pushing yourself to do things that you don't like exactly you know good to challenge yourself but yeah yeah all right great cool john thanks so much man, man. thank you so Appreciate much it. yeah my yeah. pleasure